your brain assumes the loudest voices repeated the most are the majority. And, you know, you think about the, the data on um, even just Twitter specifically, where we're conservative estimates, like about 80% of all content is created by 10% of the users. If only 10% of people in society really hold a, a view, but you think it's 80%, well, your brain's going to assume that's the majority. And unless I'm willing to go against the group, I'll, I'll just say nothing, right? Or worse, I'll lie about my views, what Tim McCurran calls preference falsification. But if enough of us do that, if enough of us self-silence, then the fringe view is the only view anyone hears. And then the result's the collective illusion. Hello, everyone. My name is Stephen Parton, and you are listening to The Feedback Loop on Singularity Radio. This week, our guest is Todd Rose, who was previously a professor at Harvard University, where he led the Laboratory for the Science of Individuality and was the faculty director of the Mind, Brain, and Education program. Since then, Todd co-founded the Think Tank Populous, which focuses on helping to improve society and the lives of individuals. And he also wrote a book that we'll be focusing on in this episode called Collective Illusions, Conformity, Complicity, and the Science of Why We Make Bad Decisions. We explore what these collective illusions are, how they relate to technology and social media, and the opportunities and consequences that arise from navigating these illusions. And so without further ado, let's just jump into it. Everyone, please welcome to the feedback loop, Todd Rose. What motivated you to focus so much of your time and energy specifically on this idea of collective illusions, which you covered in your latest book? What motivated me to this place is that so much of what um, I care about and what my think tank cares about is, you know, we feel like uh, we've woefully underestimated human potential and the capacity for free societies to generate not just material abundance, but psychological abundance as well. And we believe technology has a really vital role to play there. Um, when we look at where the obstacles are to getting to this kind of sort of positive sum abundant society, you know, we see the, this idea of collective illusions where we're just systematically wrong about what our groups believe. Um, and the fact that it's pulling so many people to conform to this phantom and behave in ways they don't want and their group actually doesn't want. We see that as one of the, the biggest threats to the promise of what free societies can deliver on. And so while it wasn't not actually something we started out um, studying, it's become a focal point for us just because of its linchpin role in as an obstacle to progress. Yeah, and I, when you talk about this, it first made me think of Freud and his book, Civilization and Its Discontents. And the idea that there's that constant tension between the individual's desires and the demands of a society. When does this become an issue? Because to some extent, right, we have to reconcile that relationship and mm -hmm. acquiesce to the the norm. But when yeah. does that tip into a place where it becomes dangerous? So, you know, I look, conformity obviously has some real value. And I love that we went right to Freud. This is, yeah, this is not usual, but let's not, do it. Not usual, but it's great. It's, uh, um, Look, conformity, we like to always think conformity is bad, but in fact, actually, there's a reason we are hardwired with a conformity bias because there is some upside, right? Uh, we're, 
one of the few species that really has the ability to learn socially. So there's so many things. I mean, think how bad it would be if we had to learn everything the hard, hard way. So, you know, part of part of um, giving up private views and going with the group is because sometimes the group does actually know more than you do. So it's a capacity we want to have as human beings. And then every every act of conformity should be a choice of recognizing, right? Sometimes you shouldn't give in. So that's always been a tension throughout society and throughout history. Um, where it becomes a, a no-brainer universal bad is when you were wrong about the group to begin with. Because you can, you can argue, let's say you're right about the group and you disagree, but you go along to get along. Okay, whatever, that's your call. But in this case with collective illusions, conformity gets weaponized and you end up doing things that are less fulfilling and, and meaningful to you. And the very act of doing that, act of conforming, could actually destroy the very group that you care about. That, that is an ultimate bad decision as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, and before we get too deep into the technological side of things, can you like lay the foundation with an example or two of kind of some of the common collective illusions and maybe the ways that they undermine our well-being? Yeah, so un unfortunately, I mean, fortunately for this conversation, unfortunately for society, um, you know, there, there's so many of them right now that it's, you can shake a stick and, and, and that um, so some of them not surprising, um, the current ones have a lot to do with our politics because they're just a lot of social pressure, especially with identity being tied to politics. So I'll give you a couple of quick ones and we can talk about some some broader ones that are meaningful. Um, you know, on the political left, we have a lot of data on there are illusions around like defund the police, which has already sort of run its course. But that there are Democrats in private. There were never more than single digit uh, percentages of people who actually agreed with that. Um, but they thought most Democrats did. And so you're going to go along. Right. That, that, like I said, that's kind of unraveled already when people got to vote in Minneapolis. On the right, it's the rigged election of, of 2020. Um, 57% of Republicans will say out loud that they think it was rigged. That number's closer to 14% in private. Mm. So wow. those are things, <laughs> the politics, but you can see how in with politics, there's always some sort of emperor with no clothes that has a lot to gain if we fall for the illusion, right? Um, the uh, What's interesting though, is when we look across all of our life, not just our politics, because we thought, well, maybe politics is just uniquely stupid and uniquely, um, you know, polarizing, which is sort of true. Um, and maybe that's just why these illusions exist. But unfortunately, we're seeing them um, in the most private aspects of our lives, too. And, and we have a, a hypothesis around social media and stuff we can talk about about why that's the case. But um, here's an example. Uh, we did uh, at my Think Tank Populous, we do what's called like private opinion research. So we have methods to get around social pressure, look at trade-off priorities. So we did the largest private opinion study ever in, in 2019 on what people mean by a successful life. Like, what kind of life do you want to live? I mean, what could be more personal and more important than what are my values and priorities for my life? And we actually use this method called conjoint, which allows for, instead of just asking you point blank, it's force real world trade-offs to reveal your priorities. And we compared 76 different attributes that could be come into a good life. Everything from being the richest person you know to being a parent, right? Everything in between. 
And here's what's interesting. Like everything we do, we always ask, what would you, what do you think? And then what do you think most people would say to that same question? Okay, so with respect to success, we believe that most Americans would rate being famous as the number one attribute in a successful life by far. It's not even close, right? It turns out in private, it's dead last number 76 out of 76. So, okay. So let's think about what this means. And like, it's a good one to show the, the, the consequences here. So in our research, we looked at not just what your priorities were, but how you doing on those, right? Are you achieving on them, you know, or not? And we found a very, very robust relationship between the extent to which you achieve on your own values and your overall life satisfaction. That, that doesn't seem that controversial, right? If I'm doing things I care about, wouldn't I like my life more? Um, in fact, it was such a big effect that the, the size of the effect was equivalent to like having someone increase by just 20 points, the amount of their own achievement, which it was stuff like being a parent and, you know, having close friends and being viewed as trustworthy and that increases life satisfaction or correlates with li increased life satisfaction, the same extent of giving someone a 50% pay increase. So wow. it's a big deal. Now, conversely, no amount of achievement on what you thought the majority cared about translates into any higher life satisfaction. So, but is it equally level, motivating? I mean, it so, is. Sorry, so, yeah. It is. No, it's so, so it is. So it's, we all want, we'd all prefer to be with our group, not against, right? Mm -hmm. So, so we get something, we get a reward neurologically for being with our group. And we, we can talk about that. Some of my favorite studies have been done on that. Um, but, but here's, here's the real consequence. So, so, okay. If you chase other people's views, you might get the short-term dopamine response for being with your group, but you will not get the life satisfaction. And we've kind of all known that, right? That you, it, that's not rocket science. But, but here's the, the real social consequence to these collective illusions is this generation's illusions tend to become next generation's private opinion unless you do something about it. And, and the case of fame is a really good example. My colleagues at UCLA have been studying the effects of media <clears throat> on middle school kids for years. Like what, what values and priorities are they internalizing? Um, and up until about maybe three years ago, <clears throat> excuse me, the, the dominant theme that kids internalize, they were character related. It's kind of great, right? That's kind of what you'd hope. A few years ago, it changed and it hasn't changed back. It, it is now, I want to be famous. I want to be a YouTube star. One kid in the last one they did, they did some qualitative stuff with these kids. He said, I want to have a million followers. And they were like, at what? He's like, doesn't matter. <laughs> right? Yeah, just so, fame. Yeah. And it's like, you know, we all know that we're not telling the truth about, you know, we have these, we want to live lives of meaning and purpose. And we're so convinced everybody else wants fame. Um, our kids aren't in on it, right? So they're internalizing a view that is not actually shared in private, in public. So those are the kind of, it's bad enough when it's about something like the life you want to live. We've seen massive collective illusions in things like, what do we want for the country? Like, what do we want to be? What kind of values do we hold? What do we aspire to? Um, to our priorities for almost every single public institution from education to our, the, our workforce, to criminal justice, you name it. And we're just spectacularly wrong about each other. And unless we do something about that, it becomes self-fulfilling.
Well, I was going to say, in that collective illusion, then, in <clears throat> the way it affects the younger generation, kind of seems like it gets baked into our social institutions. Because if we, you know, as if our generation, let's say people who are currently 18 and up, um, are thinking that way, then they're creating technology that says, hey, everyone wants fame. So let's give them follow buttons. Let's give them like buttons. Let's make an attention economy solely based on influencers and getting yeah. attention and getting famous. And then the next generation comes in. And even though we didn't really want that, now they're being raised thinking that's the value system of the world. It's, yeah, you're exactly right. And I, I love that you brought this up because one of the things that's interesting is under this illusion of fame. So we, we talk to our people in advertising in Hollywood and people with their hand at the switch of like social media companies. They're under the same illusions. So this is the thing. It's like we, we like to believe that there's somehow this. I mean, there might be some nefarious stuff going on, but like usually they just want to give people what they think they want. Right. That, that's that's like rule number one for free markets. right? Like, so, you know, I, I had an advertising buddy. He said, oh, no, listen, I, I said, why? Why are you selling fame all the time? He said, look, I don't care. I don't want fame, but I'm certain everybody else does. And so like I'm I'm he's like, my job as an advertiser is not to preach. It is to, to tell people what they want to hear. Right. And tie it to the brand. So that illusion and, and, and that impact. And then for for people like me, I'd be like, well, I don't care about fame but why is Rolex selling me fame? Obviously somebody wants it, you know what I mean? And so that, that cycle continues. And the same thing with social media, right? Hey, this is what people want. So you give them the like button, which is like instant dopamine hit, um, you know, sort of empty calories version of what, what your reward system is supposed to be for. <laughs> but, um, and here we go, right? And you will, you'll have a generation of people for whom this is actually the norm and the value system. Does the distance between your own personal desires, your intrinsic motivations, and the the collective illusion, does that distance increase, I guess, with more stress or maybe like a struggle? Like I'm thinking specifically of when you were talking about the executives at the tech companies. It's in my mind, the first thing I went to, maybe this is cynical, but it's like, well, they're kind of exploiting people then. They know better, but they're also motivated to do it because they need to make money to survive. Right. So there's this kind of perverse incentive to cater to the collective illusion, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Absolutely. Because look, <clears throat> collective illusions are sustained in part because somebody does benefit from them. And, you know, some of that is nefarious. Some of it is, you know, you, you take the politics right now and it, you, you know, the fringes know their fringes and they lose their power the second people speak up. And so, you know, you're going to do everything you can, to, to make sure that, that, that they're like, there's heads on pikes when anyone tries to speak up and, you know, whatever. But actually, if you think about like the executives in these companies, I don't, I, I think it's just motivated reasoning, right? Like, they, they, like, I know I need to make money. And so I'm looking at this and I can justify that because I believe that this is what people want. And so I, I just think there's not a lot of incentive to really do the deep thinking and say, like, am I really giving people what they want? Or am I just taking the easy shortcut to the fastest way to make money under the pretense that this is what people want? Yeah. The collective illusion in that sense seems like the past of least resistance. For sure. Yeah. What do you think the differences may be nowadays because of something like the internet, social media, and um, smartphones versus maybe like 60 years ago? So, you know, We've had we've known about collective illusions under various names um, for about a hundred years, um, systematically researched. They've obviously been around in folklore for a lot longer. I mean, the Emperor's New Clothes is exactly this. Right? So, um, 
what's different now is the both the speed with which they can be created and almost they've been democratized like who can actually create them um and the just the scale of them and and that's comes back to our technology and 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 to sort of to, to, to sort of understand why let me just kind of just take a second to say like why it is that we end up falling and helping to contribute to these things right because you just need to know two things about your brain and the first one we already kind of talked about which is we have a built-in conformity bias right it doesn't mean we doesn't mean we can't break from the group but we would prefer not to if we didn't have to um and I'll come back to the second because I want to give you one study I talked about in the book, but it's just one of my favorite ones because as a scientist, I, I always look at some studies. I'm like, how did they get money to do this? You know, um, and one of my colleagues from the Netherlands, he was really interested uh, in the extent to which how deep was conformity, right? Is it just on social things? And so he decides he's like, well, what's the most personal thing I could think of? And it was like a very um, elaborate version of hot or not, where he's like, who do you think is good looking? Because that is at some level subjective. I mean, I, you know, there might be some things like symmetry and things like that, that are universal, but like, you know, we like what we like. And so he does the sort of uh, puts people in a scanner and shows them pictures of people's faces. And their job is just to rate on like a scale of one to five, how attractive you think the faces are. And then what he did was the manipulated condition was, um, on after I say, I, let's say a picture comes up and I'm like, oh, he's a two to me. I'm instantly shown an, the number that represents the average of everyone who's done the study before. Now, what's interesting is this is a group you don't know and don't really care about. So it's not like an in-group, it's just a group. What's fascinating is it was manipulated. The data was made up so that about half the time you were against your group, no matter what you said, and half the time you were with your group. So. What's fascinating is on the trials where you're told your subjective score is the same as your as the group, it triggered a dopamine reward response in your brain. Same reward response that hard drugs hit, right? Conversely, if you are told that your subjective score is going against the group, it triggers an error signal in your brain, which is this massive cascading electrical signal that disrupts attention and working memory. It's meant to tell you something's wrong, and you might want to change behavior. So when I say we have a conformity bias, that's it's pretty deep, right? Um, and that conformity would be, it, it's one thing. The second part you got to know about your brain, and this is where we get in trouble with, with our technologies, is your brain is actually spectacularly bad at estimating group consensus. It's just bad. It feels like we're really good, right? Your brain is certain about it, but it uses this shortcut, which is... It, I'm sure it had a purpose because it evolved this way, but uh, your brain assumes the loudest voices repeated the most are the majority. And so it was never a perfect shortcut, but back in the day when you were in small groups and stuff, you could see how even if, it, if, it, if you were wrong, you could correct it because you knew everybody. Now on social media, which on the one hand, it democratizes voice, which is pretty great, right? But now, anyone who really cares, who really wants to be loud and speak up, which is usually someone super passionate about their opinion, um, can easily masquerade as consensus. And you know, you think about the the data on um, even just Twitter specifically, where we're conservative estimates like about eighty percent of all content is created by ten percent of the users. 
And that 10% tends to be pretty extreme on social issues. They're, they're just not representative, but you can see the problem here and, and why this is so widespread now, um, difference between now and say 60 years ago. If only 10% of people in society really hold a, a view, but you think it's 80%, well, your brain's gonna assume that's the majority. And unless I'm willing to go against the group, which people do, I'll, I'll just say nothing, right? Or worse, I'll lie about my views, what Tim Curran calls preference falsification. But if enough of us do that, if enough of us self-silence, then the fringe view is the only view anyone hears. And then the result's the collective illusion. It seems that's going to naturally lead to polarization because then you're constantly in a situation where you don't have, like in the, in the previous generations, you would have walked around and talked to people and been like, oh, that person's just loud and annoying and kind of radical in their ideas. But the rest of us pretty much understand that there's some common sense alternatives, right? But now you go online and all you see is this dominant viewpoint and you don't have any one to check your, you know, rational right. out rationale with. That's right. And, and so, and two things about that, which is, um, you know, we have probably more private opinion data on the American public than any organization. And I, I'm telling you in private, what is shocking is how much common ground there really is. I mean, and we're not trying to find that. Like if, if, if we really are privately divided, so be it. And there are some things like, for example, we're really divided on immigration. That's not an illusion. We just really are. Um, there's a handful of things like that. What's so fascinating is the perception of polarization is just, it's it's like we, we did work um, on American Aspirations Index about like, what do you want America to be? What are our priorities? What should we be as a country? Before we gave people the private opinion instrument, we just asked them, it, it just like regular public opinion, are we more divided or united as a country? And, you know, 82% said we're more divided. Half of them said we're extremely divided. Even worse, if you cut the data by who you voted for in the last election, a majority of both sides said the other side does not share their values for the country. And yet you put these same exact people in the private opinion instrument and just shocking similarity in our highest aspirations. And so, you know, I want to be careful here because even though the, polar, the polarization is perceived more than real, it doesn't matter. The consequences are real. There, there's an old, uh, it's called the Thomas theorem um, in social psychology, which is if, if you believe it to be true, it's real in its consequences. If I believe most people don't share my values, then it's true in its consequence. And I think this is where we are as a country. And it's, it, it has these ricocheting consequences for things like social trust. You know, it, we have some of the lowest levels of social trust, which is trusting strangers, right? Lowest levels ever recorded in this country. Free societies do not function with low levels of social trust. And the moral foundation of social trust is shared values. So it's, it's a pretty tragic state where it's one thing if we don't trust each other because we really don't share values. Whole different problem when we actually do share values, we just don't believe it. Well, it especially concerns me if we're talking about, you know, uh, the younger generation inheriting the shadow of the the, the, pre, uh, the current generation. Because if that means we all think everyone's polarized, then our kids are going to be perceiving the world as more polarized and wanting fame and the combination of wanting fame and polarization is where you get what demagogues and mm -hmm. just not a, a not a very pretty world that's right and and you know this this other aspect of its ability to create illusions around polarization we know for sure that on social media state actors have systematically 
done this, right? Russia for sure, but China at a scale that would make Russia blush. And, and it's like, we often think that what they're doing is spreading disinformation, which is kind of true, but actually the vast majority of what they do is actually use social bots to go in and analyze conservative Twitter, liberal Twitter, find fringe views and swarm and retweet until that fringe view starts to feel like consensus. And then you'll see, let's say, I, let's say I'm, let's say I leaned as a Democrat and I'm like, well, I thought we were liberal, but now we're ultra progressive, but I'm watching Republicans go to the fringe. And I'm like, well, I'm not them. Right. And so do I want to literally be ostracized from any group? No. So I'll scooch over and be a little more with my group. Right. And you just start to polarize. And, and so I'm seeing my group becoming more extreme, but I'm seeing the other side becoming more extreme, which seems even more intolerable to me. Yeah, on that note, do you think the the proclivity, I guess, towards tribalism and kind of building echo chambers, is, is that working in any, are there any pros to that? Or is this just pure negative where we're just creating more strict norms? Because I feel like in some ways there's a benefit of saying, hey, I have a more intimate community. There's a smaller number of us. Mm -hmm. We share ideas. That's a beautiful kind of thing. On the other side, I feel like what you tend to see is this uh, demand for really strict adherence to the norms of that group because they're wanting their boundaries to be very clearly delineated from the outside yeah. world. And that's a, that's a function of all in-groups, right? Which is that yeah. like, if you can't demarcate between the in-group and out-group, what's the point of the in-group? And so we tend to exaggerate that in our mind. Um, and there's some evolutionary reasons that are beneficial there, but it's pretty bad now. I, to your point though, you know, I actually think there's a tremendous upside for connectivity and community where we get those sort of long tail possibilities, right? Where I grew up in rural America, where basically everybody was the same religion, the same thing, like, but, but you know how hard it was for me. I, I am deeply conservative, but I was, I pole vaulted. And so the, the world record holder at the time was a guy named Sergei Bubka, who's Soviet. <laughs> and so yeah, yeah, meanwhile, yeah. Red Dawn era, I'm like, you know, have a, poster of a Soviet pole vaulter in my room. It was a little tough, but, but imagine the beauty of digital communities where we can find um, affiliation and affinity in niche ways, I think is so powerful and, and meaningful. But to your point, like the only way that you get the upside of that without the incredible downside of the tribalism and, and the sharply defined in-group out-group is the sort of commitment to meta norms of tolerance and free speech and those things. Like as long as those are enforced and widely shared, the sort of super ordinate um, values, then these niche groups actually are almost pure upside. But the second that starts to break down and we're seeing that start to break down at least in perception, then you just get sort of micro tribalism in a way that is is pretty bad. Yeah, how do, how do we, I guess, take it upon ourselves to build towards those um subordinate you know umbrella values uh rather than just succumbing to the values of our group and losing that sense of tolerance like it, how, yeah. what's the recommend is there a recommendation for how we can kind of yeah find that common ground beyond here's the, the sort of vicious loop that we're in with collective illusions mm -hmm. so there's a massive collective illusion right now in the u.s related to individual rights and particularly free speech and tolerance, which is we're pretty convinced most people don't care about it anymore, but actually a super majority of Americans across all demographics 
still really, really care about it and, and are actually quite frustrated by the fact that other people don't, or they believe other people don't. Now, of course, if I think you don't care about tolerance and that I think you're just gonna attack me, you're not gonna listen to me, then I'm gonna engage with you differently. And it, again, it becomes this weird self-fulfilling prophecy. And so for, for us, we, we felt like the fact that we know that in private, the, we don't need to convince people to hold those superordinate values. They already do hold them in private. So that, that's the good news, right? It's not a persuasion problem, it's a, it's a revealing problem. And, and that's usually the way collective illusions work. You can, they're, they're really powerful when they're enforced, but they're fragile because they're lies. And if you pursue the right strategy and you can, you can unleash social change in a hurry, um, sort of exponential kinds of change, because it's just, once people realize being with their, being themselves is being with their group, <laughs> they, they'll start to speak up. Um, the, the, the challenge is right now, because we're stuck in the illusion around the, the, the superordinate values, it's going to require sort of careful, like shattering of that illusion to free up that value, which then allows us to do the, do the rest of it. And for, for me, that's actually why I wrote the book, um, because only 3% of the public what we polled before even knew about this phenomenon. So that, it's a problem because your brain is going to tell you you're right about the group. You have no you have no way to know that you're just wrong and so part of like like most science right it, it's about overcoming your instinct or your bias right because it's you think it's true but it's not and you got to learn how to overcome that i think the same thing here for us to not just survive but thrive in with these technologies we have to come to terms with the fact that you cannot trust your brain's judgment about the group anymore and that's okay that's okay and um if we can get there and realize that even if all you do is care about your group, self-silencing or falsifying your preferences based on what you think the group wants is a recipe for disaster, even for the group itself. And so if we can come to understand this phenomenon, I think we, ha we have a good shot at, at getting somewhere much, much better as a society. Yeah. One of the things that I struggle a lot with, or I guess would be one of my biggest concerns is how we are able to even find ourselves amongst the current paradigm because i think specifically on social media right we we go online and we put up certain pictures of ourselves and they get a few likes or something and then we put up a picture that caters more to the norm like you know for let's say we put a picture of ourselves playing video games. Well, that doesn't look as cool as if you put a picture of yourself rock climbing or something, right. you know, and then, and then we start catering to this expectation that social media creates. And I feel like a lot of us are losing ourselves in the, in the curated trends. We, we, yeah. we end up just deciding to pretend to be something we're not. And it's, I think it's, it's either, I think it's Vonnegut, but he said, be careful who you pretend to be because you are who you pretend to be. That's right. And that's it, right. and you know, I feel like that's a lot of what's happening now is like, we, we it, how do we even find ourselves? How do find, how do we find our way back to individuality and yeah. authentic self when we've spent so much time and we have this massive system pushing us towards that conformity? That's something yeah. that worries me a lot. It, it, and, and it should. And, you know, it's, um, some of our current work at Populous, and it's led by my co-founder, uh, Dr. Parisa Rohani, she's focused on what this has done to our identity, right? How we come to see who we are. And there's a lot of really good research around, because um, you know, your identity is both 
authentic. There's some personal part of me. And then there is a social part of your identity. And, and those things have to integrate. Because we are, we quickly learn with the sort of quick dopamine response to the to start to present ourselves through the perceived expectation of others. It actually ends up shaping most of our identity being around social. And, and the problem is, is when that's true, the research is pretty clear, you are uniquely susceptible to conformity. Because in fact, when you put people in, in fMRI scanners, where, and especially where their identity is tied to a single social group or something, and I ask you to reflect on yourself, we'll get certain kinds of brain activation. If I ask you to reflect on your in-group, we get the exact same areas of the brain lighting up. So your brain's not making much of a distinction between that group and yourself, which does a couple of things. One, you have lost yourself, right? It makes it very hard to discover the authentic you because any act of that is an act of betrayal to the group, right? So it's, you're stuck. You're also uniquely manipulatable at that point. And so there's been really good research around how do we start to decouple that? And the first step is what they call like identity complexity, which is you've got to spread out the, the social groups that matter to you, even if you just have three, because it turns out that's very protective against the worst aspects of conformity. But then you've got to turn inward and start to discover that individuality. Now, this is a little bit of a cheat in terms of a shortcut, but the single best way that we've seen that be able to happen for people who are stuck with these social expectation views of their identity is actually, again, for the group that you belong to, to actually value this. <laughs> it's, it seems obvious. And what's important is, is those groups can be formed. It doesn't have to be political parties and other things. It's like groups that actually are, are around single issues, opt in, are diversity promoting, authenticity promoting, because they don't care. Like, like I'm a huge Boston Celtics fan. It doesn't matter. Like as long as I like the Celtics, it doesn't matter what else I am. There's no other ticket to entry besides liking the Celtics. So there, there are some things that people can actually do if they're worried about this. And one is make sure if, if you only have one group, if basically my identity is my politics, you are in really big trouble. That group has cult-like power over you. And in the book, I actually quite like, go into this around the, the effect of cults like this. And so diversifying that a bit, focusing on, on value driving groups that actually are promoting of this, it's the fastest way for you to discover who you are because you're actually rewarded by your group for doing that. Yeah, it makes me think of, um, are you familiar with the self-determination theory? Mm-hmm. Makes me think of that and the idea that, you know, we have the psychological needs of competence, of relatedness, and um, what's the last one I'm autonomy. looking for? What's autonomy. autonomy, yes, thank you. Yep. The obvious one. Um, and like, I, I'm thinking, you know, if we don't have a lot of what is maybe happening here is we don't have that relatedness in our lives. Maybe I think I read a study where the average person now feels like they have zero people they can rely on in an emergency that are yeah. the most common answer. And like, if you don't have that sense of um, social security, literally, uh, you're apt to do whatever the closest in group wants of you because you want to feel part of something. I feel like so a big part of this is that lack of connection. Yeah, and and and, and you, we need that, right? And, yeah. and it's it's critical. And I think um, uh, DC and Ryan, who did uh, yep. self formation, it's it's really important, right? And these things are on par with each other. We want autonomy and we want to be connected. We want to relate, right? We want to belong. Um, and right now, the way we've structured things is those things are antagonistic of one another. 
And so what's funny is, is if you think about, given how much we've leaned into the social side of this, and that's become almost the defining feature of how we see ourselves, why are we so damn lonely then? <laughs> like, why are we so isolated? We've never been more connected, and yet we've never been more lonely. We have incredibly high rates of deaths of despair. I, I do think, you know, um, Robert Putnam's Bowling Alone got some of that right, which is we've decimated the sort of civic society where we used to have all these ways for people to join things and be a part of things. And now everything is like literally a federal case, right? It's like national politics and this, and it's just, and what's really sad about that is it's not even real belonging, right? It's fitting in. And that is not the same as belonging. Belonging is when you are valued and loved and cared for, for who you really are, not for your willingness to live up to someone else's expectation. Yeah. It feels like it's more just about a, appeasing the fear of being a social pariah rather than cultivating a, a true connection. Yeah, you're right. It's, it's, we're really playing the game of how do you avoid being ostracized at all costs? Um, and because you know what the truth is, is we, you know, our brains have, we're very sensitive to even the slightest hint of being ostracized because evolutionary, it meant death. You don't survive. Right. And so we are very sensitive, like hair trigger to this kind of stuff. So I think you're right. Like I, I think we're not even trying to optimize on the belonging. We're just trying to avoid being like kicked out of the group at all costs. And so it's it's a pretty terrible place to be. And, and that's a bad thing. But I, I do think as I try to talk about in the book, like because the, the collective illusion is the heart of most of this, it means there's a way out. Right. It means like we can get somewhere pretty great. We really can um, if we can recognize the real nature of the problem and realize that every time we lose our voice because we think we're just going along, we are contributing to something that is bad for us and bad for everybody else. Yeah. And I think at one point you said one of the best ways through this, and luckily this kind of kills two birds with one stone, one stone is uh, t just talking to people. But what I'm, what I, what I'm wondering is, does the medium uh, matter in which we talk to people? Does it matter if it's in-person versus voice-only conversations on something like Discord or video chats on Zoom or text on social yeah. media? Like where where does the uh, value of talking to somebody disintegrate depending on how much disconnection there is? It's a really good question. So um, with respect to shattering collective illusions, there's two types of ways that that happens where we as human beings play a role here. The first are sort of the social meaning makers that just have asymmetric effects on everybody else. So look, I think you saw this when Elon was like, hey, let's, all of a sudden it was like, wait, I can speak up for free speech. You know what I mean? I, 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 like, and you saw a lot of other people found their voice because one person who, 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 who has the ability to shape social meaning or for, for some people. So for those folks, the medium doesn't seem to actually matter right? Like, like they can actually have that effect because they're signaling to everybody about sort of what the norms really are and, and things like that. But the, the other groups with like the rest of us are just like everyday catalysts. And that's, that's me talking to people who I see that are like me and importantly, that have the same constraints as me, right? Because listen, if, if I'm worried about speaking up because I don't want to get canceled or I just don't want it, whatever, and some rich dude who's this is like, it's fine. Speak up. I'm like, yeah, it's easy for you to say, right? Like, in fact, probably if you're a comedian or if you're Joe Rogan, you're going to get more followers. Like, like it, it doesn't land because I'm like, you don't know what I'm going through, but you know, you think about the um, Arab spring and, and that was started by one person 
unfortunately lighting themselves on fire, but around a complaint as a cart merchant that everybody resonated with. And it was like, if that guy's feeling this, right? I think a lot of us are feeling this. And so each one of us has that role, but in that case, the medium does matter. When you're on these broader platforms, your, your impact is pretty negligible, but when you get in everyday conversation, particularly with in your communities, it's like this, this is where you can have your biggest effect because we also are, are often, we're able to read affect, we're in sincerity, we're willing to give people a little bit back and forth, like clarify, right? Like, what do you mean defund the police? I mean, I had this conversation with someone I care deeply about who was the biggest proponent of this. And I'm like, really? And then when you talk to them, she was like, well, I, I don't, I don't mean not fund them. I'm like, well, what, what do you think defund? Them? And, and then her view of it, I was like, well, well, I can get behind that. I can get behind spending some more money and making sure the right people are showing up for the right problems, but we're not, I'm not getting there um, on Twitter. Right. So, um, and in fact, the whole plat, those kind of platforms don't lend themselves to nuance and conversation. So th- th- that was a long way to way of saying, unless you're Elon Musk, you got to get out in real life and have conversations with the people around you. And here's my promise to you. If you do that, if you just try, you are going to be shocked at, at how much common ground there is and how fast these illusions shatter. And we can get on with building a more perfect union. Yeah. I love that. How do you think the way that tech companies are tracking us, tracking our data, I should say, I don't want to, not tracking us, but um, the way tech companies are tracking our data and potentially using it to uh, alter how they present information to us could be affecting this. Because I think in some ways, one of the things I'm really excited about with data tracking is things like artificial intelligence tutors, where they Mm -hmm. can pick up on what your proclivities and strengths and weaknesses are and help you have a more uh, customized curriculum. At the same time, uh, it can also push us into these boxes because what it's doing is saying, hey, people like you like this same content. Here's a recommendation engine that shows you this, or here's something that you've already looked at. So we're going to send you an advertisement. And it seems right now what we're doing is more like calcifying current beliefs and ideas rather than using it to kind of open people up to new ideas. Yeah, it, it, you're, I think you're 100% right. And, you know, some of my early work um, when I was at the university was all around this individuality and the capacity of our understanding about human individuality to embed that in our technologies for deep personalization. And there's an enormous upside there. And I think you name it. I think AI-based like tutoring and mastery-based stuff, that has unbelievable potential. But what we've done, rather than rather than start with an actual understanding of the complexity of, of human beings, and you know, my my, um, my friend Ulrich Christensen, who runs uh, Area Nine, which does a lot of this adaptive tech stuff, he once showed me the behind the scenes um, diagram, path diagram of how you got to a single algebraic problem, right? Mm it looks like the biggest tree you've ever seen with like, I mean, a million if thens of like, you know, like branching structures all to get to the same exact outcome. And what you realize is if you built the technology to really respond to that reality, then we can actually get people to pretty interesting places. But what we've done instead is we take the shortcut of, well, there's three kinds of learners. And now I'm using data. I've already made those assumptions, which aren't true. 
And I'm just using data to route you into one of those paths. And, and the worst part about it is at least back in the age of standardization, you knew it was happening to you. You knew it was this blunt instrument. You just, you couldn't do much about it, but you knew it. Right now, what's happening is you're being manipulated and you're thanking them for it because you think it's personalization. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so, you know, I just, I feel like the problem is, is I don't know how to solve that from a business standpoint. Like, I actually think you are very much incentivized to do this other thing because it's just, you know, um, and so for me, I tend to gravitate toward the cultural side of this and the the ability for the American public to understand what we know now and understand what they need to know about themselves and how to how to arm themselves to be able to to use these tools in ways that are empowering rather than manipulating. Yeah. Are there any specific technological trends or innovations or features or even cultural things at this point? that you feel are moving us towards more of a common ground? Because one of the things, you know, Singularity focuses on, and I think a lot of us want to focus on is solving big issues in the world, solving issues with poverty and energy and polarization. Um, But it seems like we're struggling to get there probably because we don't have common ground. We need common ground to solve these issues. So is there anything that you see that is moving us towards that common ground? Yeah. So look, I mean, I have a, so I, I, I share the, the views and values that, that, that you espouse. And, and, and I happen to think right now, um, if you look at history, I, I'm a really crummy student of history, but I like to pretend, right. I, I like, I, I think I'm a cherry picking student of history. How's that? But, um, but one of the things I'm fascinated about in history is the times when big societal changing technologies enter the equation and I, I'm just fascinated by what we know before, during, and after. And like everything, technology is a trade-off. It's not a solution, right? Nothing's a solution. It's just trade-offs. And so if you go all the way back to um, the transition from oral to written work, right? It seems pretty obvious that that technology had huge upside. Mm-hmm. Now, Socrates, if you believe Plato, thought it was the end of the world, right? We're going to destroy our memory. And if by reciting Homer, you know, yeah, you're probably right. <laughs> we don't do that very well. But it seemed obvious that the trade-off, you could imagine that the trade-off was going to be worth it. Now, what happens is, and I think we're in, in the same spot here, which is what you realize after you can articulate the vision of what should be, that to get the trade-off to be worth it, there's almost always some new skill or mindset or value that has to be adopted or acquired by a critical mass of, of the populace mm-hmm. for the trade-off to be worth it. So in the case of written word, it's obvious, right? It's literacy. <laughs> if, if you can't read, it is not a good trade-off. Yeah. You know, and 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 because we didn't really grasp that, the elites hoarded that, arguably until the Reformation. You know, it took like an act of God <laughs> to democratize access to that skill. And so look, I mean, it's funny, some of the smaller versions you think about like the first passenger trains in Germany and, you know, everybody got vertigo and the, the authorities were like, Hey, listen, God didn't mean us to ride on these trains. And they were going to ban passenger trains until someone figures out maybe you shouldn't, you shouldn't just look right out the window, <laughs> look off in the distance. And it solves for that. Right. So like, I, I think that, um, you know, with the technologies we have now and their incredible capacity for connection and personalization at scale, 
right? I mean, just uniquely powerful. We can easily see what the upside should be. Everybody has a voice. Um, I can have N of one, even at the science level and still scale. I mean, and that's still there for the taking. But I think what we're seeing now is that to make that trade-off worth it, there are some obstacles that the exact same technologies introduce that we're going to have to figure out how to overcome. And I believe that collective illusions are one of those. They just, these mm. technologies just put it on steroids, but those are sort of easy workarounds. I mean, not easy, but easy enough, which yeah. is compared to half the problems we're trying to solve, which is like the good news for us is in, in the Western liberal tradition, we've already done the hard work of, of, lifting up a set of values and, and norms that make free societies work. We've never been perfect at it. We've mm -hmm. never been as inclusive as we should be, but like here we are. And, and, you know, you, you want to, you want to have collective illusions, never darken our doorstep again, have a society fully committed to tolerance and inclusion and recognizing that every time we silence someone, we all risk the group. Yeah. You do that and 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 we're on a path, right? And and you know the, the same thing on the individuality side. You know, I, I'm I'm headed um on Monday to Estonia to spend some time with them because they're one of the first like truly digital societies, right? Yeah. And and they've done it in a way what I am fascinated by and trying to understand and learn from them is they seem to have done this in a way that has been, you know, uh individuality promoting individual rights promoting, freedom promoting, but not at the cost of collective prosperity. Yeah. And they have some of the highest levels of social trust. They have all these things. So I'm, I'm super intrigued by like how much of it was policy, how much of it was, was cultural, you know, how much of it is just not what I think it is. <laughs> we'll find out. But so I, I think this is kind of where we're at right now. And it's pretty clear that the technologies still have these incredible upsides. Um, but we're now starting to see the, the obstacles that the same technologies have put in our way. And we've got to overcome them with a set of skills and mindset and values. And if we do, I think we're, we're in good shape. Yeah, there you go. Hold on to those higher values and take a step back and understand the landscape. Uh, let's see, Todd, I think we're coming up on time here, man. But I want to thank you for all the time that you've provided us. Is there anything you want to end with any last notes on how to kind of thrive and navigate this world or anything you'd like to share, promote or talk about? Yeah, um, since we've been able to cut, we've gone from Freud to <laughs> like Vonnegut to, you know, um, Socrates. Uh, look, the, the important thing about collective illusions, and if you go to our website, populist.org, you can see all the research we've done. And you, it's just shocking how, how many illusions there are in, in this country, in particular right now. I, I was saying, like, the good news is that they are fragile and that, you know, if we find the moral courage to be honest with each other about what we really think, and we find the civic courage to make it safe for other people to do the same thing you are going to be shocked at the speed and scale of the kind of change that is possible. And we know this through history. And I'll just end with my favorite example. And I, I end the book with this about where the power of collective illusions to drive change when you shatter them. And it's, it's the velvet revolution in Czechoslovakia, right? Which is, it's, it's arguably one of the most unique revolutions ever because it was overthrew communist regime without anybody dying. At, at, a, at a period of time when you go to Hungary or even Czechoslovakia, 
a couple decades earlier, just bloodshed and mass bloodshed. And what is so fascinating about that story, and by the way, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give uh, everyone that's listening a reading assignment, which is um, the guy who led that revolution wasn't a military person, wasn't a politician. It was uh, Václav Havel, who was a poet and a playwright. And he actually wrote a manifesto called The Power of the Powerless, which is about, about 80 pages long. And I promise you, it's free online. If you read it, it is chilling and inspiring and feels like he wrote it today. And in it, he explains how he was, he was going to drive this social change. He had written a play called The Garden Party, which was satire of communism. It was so subtle that even the, the censors didn't know they were being made fun of. Anyway, it becomes like the Hamilton of its time. It's sold out for years. And he realizes that people are laughing at all the right parts. And he said, if you really believed in communism, you wouldn't, you wouldn't find this funny. So he realizes that there's this, he didn't call it collective illusion, um, but he realizes like people don't believe in this. They just think they believe in it. People believe in it. And so he realizes that the way forward isn't force. It isn't money. It isn't politics. It is authenticity. It is reclaiming the personal responsibility for that, that they had lost. And, you know, he, he even had a neighbor as the story goes, I don't know how true it was, but it was told a million times of, a, of an old woman who he saw it with a little box for gardening. And he said, hey, you, you like gardening? She said, no, I don't. It's <laughs> like, I can see it, you know? And he's like, she said, you don't ever tell the truth about what you think because you never know what could happen. So he he decides instead of, he never forms a political party. He, he builds what he called parallel structures for people to learn to be authentic again in small ways and build the habit. And he was mocked mercilessly for it. He was like, this is naive, right? Like you are not overthrowing communism um, with authenticity. If it turns out, yeah, yeah, that's exactly how you do it. And what was so fascinating about this is that work, which took about eight years, it's building, it's building. And then the, 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 the students converge on the square for a different reason, whatever. But before it all starts to, to, to go down, uh, Havel is interviewed in a magazine, an international magazine, where even he's surprised by how fast this is going to happen. Because he says, listen, I'm in this fight for the rest of my life. I don't believe I'll live to see the end of it, though. Three months later, he was the first democratically elected president of free Czechoslovakia. So, look, if a poet can overthrow communism yeah. by understanding collective illusions, I think we'll be okay, right? We got just chance. imagine, yeah. And so, like... It, I'll just leave everyone with this. I promise you, it feels like we're deeply polarized on almost everything that matters. And it's not true. Like we actually have a lot of common ground. The problem is not deep private division. The problem is collective illusion. And that's the good news because we, and I mean, every one of us have a role to play in that. And, and if, again, if we will find them the moral courage to be honest, especially the people in, in our real lives, mm -hmm. but what we think and the civic courage to make it possible for other people to do the same, we will get through this and we will get somewhere so much better um, that only free societies can really deliver on. Yeah. That's a lovely positive note to end on after all this, Todd. Thanks for, so, uh, <laughs> thanks so much, man. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me.